0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of What I'd Wish I'd Known, the Google Partners Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Lankshire, and my goal is to get our guests to share the top five hard-learned lessons in their business, career, and life to date. What are the doable and practical secrets to their success that created the biggest impact for them? This is what I call being strategically tactical. You know, it happens all the time. You're working and delivering services, and in the course of business, you come across a process, a system, a problem that you believe you can solve by building a little custom software. Soon enough, you've got it built, you've got it installed, and it's doing the job it's supposed to do. And then you get starry-eyed. What if I sold this to another client? And so you do. And then you sell it to another client. And suddenly, the stars in your eyes become dollar signs, and you're thinking, you might have a business here. So, if you're like most agencies, you then may start to invest a little more time into the product. Maybe you'll hire a full-time developer, possibly even someone to focus on the UX. And in no time, you're now into full software development mode. Everything is great. That is, until clients start experiencing issues, or realize that the software was never designed to scale properly, and you need a complete refactoring of the code, or the volume of support requests exceeds all of your expectations, and boom! Now you're in full product mode with no business plan, no marketing plan, no development roadmap, and your key developer leaves. This is really not a fun place to be. And believe me, I know of what I speak, because I went through this whole process some years ago, and I have the gray hairs to prove it. The truth is it's actually really, really hard to make the transition from selling services to becoming a full-on product company. Many agencies have tried, but few succeed. So what is it about those that have succeeded that sets them apart? How did they manage not to lose focus on the services side of the business as they spun up their software efforts? What was their go-to market strategy, and how did they scale? Today, we're going to speak to someone who was able to make that transition and who did so rather spectacularly, I might add. His name is Josh Mannion, and he is the CEO of Insighten. Welcome to the podcast, Josh.
1: Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here.
0: Josh, it's just great to have you on the podcast today, so let me introduce you to our listeners. I've known you, I think, for like the last 12 years uh, when you were at the time the founder and CEO of Stratagent, which was a pure play digital analytics consulting firm. But you left that to go on and form uh, Insighten, where you're now the founder and CEO and a dominant player in the tag management industry today. And I know you've been really successful in sighting because I think the last time you've raised up to about $100 million in financing in support of it. So clearly a lot of people are believing in the vision that you've set forward for this. So fantastic and all that. What, I, what people probably don't know about you is I think you told me one time that you chose MIT as your safety school. And if that isn't enough, I think you also have five kids under 10. So I think you have a pretty busy life. My question to you, Josh, is outside of all of that. What's your passion? You know, what what keeps you busy? What what, what do you like to do outside of the work that you're doing in your family life?
1: Uh, well, th- thanks, Alex. is a very uh, very flattering introduction. I, I I've got to say, MIT wasn't my safety school. It was the
0: only school that would let me in. Uh... <laughs> so so you, you had the one option school. <laughs> that, that was that. That, 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 the, that, that, that was the that, come hell or High Water school. High school
1: exactly it was the only place that said yes to someone with my crazy background um and uh yeah no with the 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 kids absolutely uh keep me crazy busy and so there's not a lot of a lot of time for other stuff but it is uh you know, I mean, I, I enjoy anything really competitively uh, that I can engage in. And my wife frequently jokes that if I start doing anything that can be even remotely competitive, that I'll quickly become obsessed with it and it will become uh, something that I need to manage so that it doesn't, uh, you know, take up all of my evening and sleep time.
0: Josh, I, I got to say, I was uh, betting that your passion would be the fact that you're a status at chess. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, not quite, actually. I, I, I finished just before becoming a Grandmaster. So, uh, you know, I do give thoughts to the idea of coming back and, and trying to become one. And a couple of my sons are playing chess now. so So who knows? Cool
0: full contact <laughs> MMA style chess
1: <laughs> no but there, there actually is chess boxing now which uh, which I think if I'd have learned about when I was younger you know maybe I could have uh, done well at
0: I'm, I'm trying to put that that vision in my head chess boxing but um, let's move on you're uh, going to get to the meat of the matter today which is you know what would be the advice that you give to your younger Josh self about the most strategically tactical things to focus on? When you migrate a services business to a software startup, let's get into it.
1: Well, Alex, I mean, I, I know this is probably going to sound a little bit cliche, and everyone, everyone, I'm, I'm sure says, you know, that the culture sort of eats everything else for for breakfast. But you know, my, my first point really would be that the, the culture does not care whether it's software or services, and it requires a huge amount of attention. And and probably was the biggest mistake that we made in the early days of trying to separate uh, businesses and uh, well, actually let me give you a little bit of, of kind of background about how it happened. So yeah,
0: sure. I'd love, I, I was wanted to know what was that nexus? <laughs> like how did that about come about?
1: So, so I had been involved with Stratagent for a while, and my wife and I had started that back in 2002, and so it, it was 2009, and we were really at this point where I was trying all sorts of different things and different ideas, and the idea of building software was very exciting to me, I had, I had tested, a, you know, they, they used to sort of joke that I would have a new initiative or project that I would try to launch at least once a year, and um, And so finding something that where you really get a lot of traction uh, is critical, but it was also something that didn't immediately happen for us on the first try. And at the same time, we had developed a very sort of thriving and and really awesome culture at at Stratagent. And my naive assumption was that that would just automatically transfer to the new business. And we made the decision to split the two businesses apart um, and which, which was actually very, I think worked out very well for us in the sense of allowing us to focus on each business. One was able to, to clearly have sort of a king of being software and one was able to have the king be delivering services revenue. And those, those things are frequently at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what I really overlooked was how much work we needed to put into developing the culture and the new software business that we broke out. And some of the impacts that that was going to have on the services business, because,
0: and why was that?
1: Well, the the services business was was cruising along, was nicely profitable, was growing nicely. Everything was kind of going smooth. It was a much more mature business, right? Than than you know a brand new software you know concept with just a couple of people and no customers at the beginning, and you know honestly building software from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. And so as we did that. You know, we we really didn't didn't recognize the fact that in you know, one challenge was that all the people in the services company kind of looked at it at first as like the shiny object and was like, Well, hey, I wanna be associated with that. That looks exciting, that's new, and that's you know, that's got got Josh's time and he's spending a lot of time on that. So I wanna be involved in that too. So that was one thing that we, you know, learned quickly that we had to manage was who's doing what and why. And And then it quickly kind of almost boomeranged the other way, which was, whoa, okay, the guys on the software business are working 18 hour days and they never rest. And (laughs) they're, you know, and they're not there's no there's no sort of structure to it in the sense of, you know, if, if I'm a consultant, there was a very clear structure about what do I need to do to be to advance to get my next promotion, to get a bigger bonus check. Everything was structured and measured and there were systems and processes in place. For the software company, none of that existed, and it was just like the wild west. And you would just, you know, we would just kind of, you know, run the risk of taking people to burnout very, very rapidly. And it was, it was in some ways very, you know, um, counter to the culture that we had built at the at Stratagen at the services business. And so the 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 challenge of meshing that and finding people that that more intense culture was attractive to. Um, for the software business, you know, really start, started to create sort of a fork in the cultural road that for us was, honestly, for years and years was something that we were actively trying to manage and or change because we didn't necessarily feel as good about the culture that we had created at Insight and as the one that we had created at, at Stratagen. We wanted them to be the same, but the, the DNA was different in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. And so it, it, it led to, to many
0: missteps along the way. So, what did you do? if I can just drill in on this because as you said at the outset, you know culture and the importance of culture has been you know said many times. I don't think it's cliche, I think it's true uh, and and other guests have said that on multiple occasions the importance of culture. So my question to you is, you've identified that there was a, a, a bifurcation between the two shops and and that was problematic as long as they're anywhere near being co-located. But what did you do to to address that to try and because I, I also know that you're trying to ship product out the door. So that that, that heavy day heavy emphasis let's get our product out uh, is, is kind of maybe I've got this wrong, but it's kind of the software mojo so was the answer that you had to split them up physically what what did you do to to create each to maintain the culture at the so, at the services business and, and then establish a new one at the software side
1: well we so we made the the choice early to split the businesses apart both both physically and and uh, you know sort of legally so legally from ver- from from the absolute inception they were separate but physically they were they were sort of cohabitating for about the first nine months or so of, of Encitan's existence. And we decided that that be, you know, because of some of these cultural issues, and honestly because of some of the uh, opportunities that we perceived for Encyton, we thought it would make sense to move Encyton to California, whereas Stratagent was based in the Chicago suburbs. And so that physical separation, I think, was was good from one perspective in that it made it very clear what each company was doing. And it allowed us to to sort of separate some of the overlap that was existing that was maybe creating some of the confusion. And it was good because I think it very much helped us protect the culture of the, uh, of the services business because the, the software business was quite small when we separated. It was, you know, six or seven people, I think at that point. So it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, hundreds of people or anything. Um, the challenge that we faced was that the, it, it so, almost sort of uh, magnified the cultural problems we had on the software side, because mm-hmm. now we didn't have that sort of balancing or counterpoint of the services business and that great culture that we had built there to, to sort of rely on and create that, you know, the, the kind of good vibes, if you were. And instead, we were left, we were kind of thrown into the pit with each other. <laughs> mm. Okay, <yeah. laughs> and, and And the next few months, right after the separation, were actually very challenging from a, from just sort of a culture and morale standpoint for the software business, because we were, we were many of us were moving across the country, many of, we had a horrible little office that, you know, I, I used to joke that I could touch all the walls of my office from the desk, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> and the privilege of that cost you a lot
1: yeah oh yeah and it was costing you know you know 10 times per square foot what it what it used to cost in chicago and and we were just basically you know like caged animals living with each other working you know 24 7 and that that did not help the culture um become less intense or become less you know just sort of um, driven or sort of almost burnout centric and so we, you know, that, that took us a, a while to sort of address in the sense that we actually had to grow and sort of bring in more people and move out to different space. But, but as you know, those things take time. You know, it takes months and months to, to sort of recruit more people and to, to move offices and, and to kind of mature the business so that there was a little bit more dispersion of
0: that. So if I, if I kind of come in and before we leave this topic, what I, I really guess I hear you saying is that um, as you are building the software team. That team is going to have its own culture just because of the nature of what they're doing and how they're working and the work schedules around that. And the idea is to be really mindful of that. And if you see these two things you know, separating or bifurcating, your advice would be, again, to, to, to make a physical separation between the two so that one they, they create their own unique cultural environments which are appropriate to the type of work that they're doing. That be a summary. Yeah, I I, th- I think
1: that's a good summary. The the only other point I would probably add to that is that you know I think the biggest mistake I made on the software side in the early days as regards to culture yeah. was I, I took culture for granted because it was so good at the other company yeah, that yeah. it wasn't something that needed to be actively worked on. There wasn't a to do list item, right? It was it was just assumed that we had this awesome culture that we had built up over seven years and that that was like a foundational pillar that we could build around. And instead, we were bringing in all new people, doing all new thing, and that should have been top of my list.
0: <laughs> yeah, I get it. Good point. <laughs> a great learning lesson, Josh. Um, uh, thanks for that. So let's go to your second point.
1: Sure. So, you know, the, this this is a little bit, um, related, and obviously everything's related to, to culture, but my, my second point was to, to be super clear on your vision and make sure that everyone feels involved in, in shaping that as well. And, you know, the, 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 the follow-up on that is that it's very easy to get distracted with things. And if you aren't really crystal clear in making sure that people understand what you're in business to do and what you're not in business to do, That can be something that kind of, especially as you get into the software game, right? Although I would say it applies to services too. We we felt it in the services business, successfully solved it, and then have those same problems come back and and kind of bite us on the software side, which was, you know, what things are we going to do for our clients? What things are we not going to do? And as the organization grew, and in particular, you know, in, in our case where we were growing very, very rapidly... You know we went through periods where it was very difficult to explain to people what our vision was and feel confident that that new sales rep that we just hired or that new developer that we just hired could actually articulate the vision and make you know make choices and respond to questions and inquiries from clients or or you know design decisions that were consistent with that
0: were you hiring using vision
1: uh, we absolutely were but the problem was, was that our vision was very big and very broad. So we would talk about reinventing, you know, the, the entire digital marketing landscape, right? And, and, and that was part of the reason that I think we were successful in raising so much money was we had a very big and ambitious uh, vision. Uh, but when you think about that and your first product is tag management, you know, how does that relate to the vision? And clearly, we need to expand beyond that, but in which areas? Is data collection okay? Is reporting okay? Is testing and optimization and personalization okay? What, you know, what sequence are we going to pursue these things in? And how many of those things are we going to try to take on simultaneously? Is where, you know, it's sort of the devil is in the details, right? Like, you know, I think people could generally broad brush and say all those things could be included in a vision like that. But what are exactly are we going to do over the next six months, the next twelve? And and that was where I think we really kind of struggled to to articulate it. And at and at points we got to the point where I felt like there were only a handful of us who were successful in in being able to go in front of a client, for example, and and articulately explain the vision at you know, in a in a high level of detail and, and with a high level of competency.
0: And- and were these all people from uh, the new uh, entity or were there any holdovers from the old entity? In other words, was the the fact that your roots were in the services space that had encountered the problem set over and over and decided to try and figure out how to solve it, was any, was any of that spillover uh, useful? Or are, at this point, are you saying, no, I'm, it's now it's a new team?
1: Um. Well, we, we certainly had a blended team in the sense that, like, if you go back to the very beginning, we took, you know, like, let's say if, of the first six or seven folks that we had, you know, there were, you know, probably about half of those people had come from the old business and were involved at, you know, uh, from Stratagen, And then the other half had been hired new. Uh, as we continued- can, can I to I just
0: go- jump in there and start, did you give people the option? How did you like? Was there in that? How difficult was that separation?
1: Well, the, the separation I think was was definitely challenging, right? So we had um, the the short answer is um, I want to say we did not give everybody the the option. I think we selectively gave people that we thought were sort of candidates for the. For the culture that we saw emerging at Insight, <laughs> yeah. um, you know the the option to do it, uh, but it but it with it was sort of the explanation of what what the expectations were, and that that the culture actually was different, and in some cases the, the geography was different, and, and so on. Um, but by and large, we were also trying hard to not disrupt a highly successful business on the other side.
0: Yeah, right. Which is we where didn't I'm going want, at. Cause, cause we didn't you, want I'm, all
1: the consultants to come over
0: and say, right. right yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering how that division happens. And plus you're, uh, I'm, I imagine you're a shareholder in that other business too. So you don't, you want that, that thing to keep working the way it should work correctly.
1: No, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we, and we had to be, we had to be very careful about that as we, uh, as we structured it. So, you know, one, one thing that we did was we were able to very effectively, I think, partner the organizations together to deliver services work um, for the new business. And so I think that helped to give people a way to be involved. They could do implementation work. They could, you know, we really didn't have the resources, in, especially in the early days, to do any real services delivery work, uh, which made it uh, made it easy for us to sort of partner the two organizations together um but the you know but the the, the long term and this was sort of some of the blowback culturally in the services firm was you know i'm sure it created the situation where people were like well how come i didn't get to go with the other company you know that the other yeah. company looks totally like the, like the shiny object and yeah. maybe i wanted to move to california <laughs>
0: <laughs> why wasn't i picked you know
1: yeah exactly and-
0: yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a deep vein we could drill into there, Josh. But um, let's move on to your third point.
1: Sure. So this, you know, and, and I tried to kind of focus these these points on some of the things that I, that I thought we both did right and did wrong in this. And, you know, like many of these points, I think you can kind of view them you know, as having done a little bit of the right things and the wrong things for each one, but this was to to find the right team to complement the founder's skills. And I think this was an area that in particular, I didn't really fully appreciate when we split out. Like I knew that we needed to find, you know, some really technical resources to be sort of our, our, our CTO and our, you know, sort of technical architectural lead that, that were stronger than mine. That that was obvious to me when I started. But what I didn't really appreciate was how different a software business is from a services business. And what I mean by that is how you market it, how you sell to the, you know, we're an enterprise sales um, driven environment. So we have a, you know, we, we have to develop an enterprise sales team. What is it like to actually sell large software client or software contracts to big enterprise clients and going through the you know the the legal and contracting that we would never have been subjected to as a as a services business uh, was was quite a quite a shift and I think in the in the early days we didn't do I didn't do a very good job of arming myself with the the sort of supporting cast that I needed. To actually develop those disciplines, that you know, honestly, I, I I think I probably overthought or was overconfident of my abilities to to figure those things out on the on the fly, and in hindsight, I wish I'd uh, enlisted help earlier.
0: <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I get it. I think that uh, one of the things I've become very comfortable with personally is uh, you know people are smarter than me working for me, which makes helps me sleep at night. But I, I want to drill in a little bit further on the idea of uh, the variety of that skill set. So, the financial aspect. At what point did you start to say, "Okay, I need a different set of financial skills"? Uh, my my uh, my couple of accounting classes uh, that I took way back when no longer suffice. Uh, but. Maybe I also need to go and get some financial advice for the markets because I'm realizing that the resources I'm going to need to bring this to market are more than I anticipated. mean, that's a completely different uh, probably skill set to what you have. How did you go about understanding you know, how to hire, who to look for? At what point did you start to uh, come to this as you were, again, making this transition towards software? Well, I,
1: I think that the the way I would the the way I see this playing out is that it, it's less about being aware that you need the help, it's more about what level of conviction you actually take to go get it, right? So like it, you mm-hmm. could have stopped me at any point and said, "Oh, would it be useful for you to have a CFO or you know a." a you know, a, a SVP of sales or, you know, pick any role, right? That yep. that was a, sort of a skill set that I didn't necessarily have. And it was, and, and I would have certainly said, yes, of course. But then I would have, you know, probably said, but and started to introduce, you know, my my set of objections to why that wasn't possible. Oh, well, we, you know, we're not we're not big enough to attract the kind of candidate that we want, or we don't have the, you know, maybe we're in the middle of a funding round, and we don't want to distract ourselves with that, or maybe we, um, you know, we don't want to take the dilution, or we don't have the cash on hand to pay someone like that, that, that really is the person we want, or, you know, the excuses start to creep in. And... I think that at a certain point, right, then you start to get generally in in my experience, what would happen is I would would operate in that world where I would say, yeah, if it just happens and and it magically occurs, that's wonderful. But I wasn't sort of saying this is something I'm going to go accomplish in the next 90 days come hell or high water. And this is going to be my top priority.
0: Did that change?
1: I think that absolutely changed. But the the mistake that I made was the the conditions where it would change would be when I was already so far beyond when I should have gotten that person right, in right,
0: right, right. I was like
1: completely so, desperate. So,
0: so, so you're saying is that beaten enough times with a heavy stick, you get the idea? Is that right? A
1: little bit, and really, it it, it I think it goes to like. Dealing with the problem before it becomes a really big problem, and I think that uh, that that also sort of you know um, gets you out of this operating in crisis mode uh, concept, which you know I think is is hard when you're growing as fast as we were. But it's one of those things. When I look back on it, I say, "Wow, we we really could have done a better job on that by being really diligent about knowing not only what we wanted." And I think I would have had a much clearer vision, you know, this Josh versus you know seven years ago's Josh about what those roles should be and who should play them and what what attributes I'm looking for. Uh, but I was also going to say that I think that the the conviction about when the timing to hire them and how important it is, like for example, bringing in an operational person who's really you know can take a lot of that off of off of my plate so that I can focus on on product and early customer evangelism. If I were doing it again, I would do that from the very beginning, not something that we try to add in, you know, three years after we started.
0: So one of the things which I'm aware of, and I've done a lot of reading about this as well, and it's talked about a lot, is the, is the idea that, you know, uh, there's a little bit of crazy that's required to be an entrepreneur and a focus and be able to kind of execute on that vision that one has and that drive. And with that often comes uh, a little bit of blindedness to seeing the perspective of others or being able to onboard uh, the advice and counsel of others. Did you see that happening to you? And if so... How did you learn to overcome that? Uh,
1: I absolutely see that happening to me. I, I don't know that I'd say I've mastered overcoming that. <laughs> uh, none of your
0: employees played me to ask that question, by the way, Joe. Yeah,
1: no, I, I thought that might actually be planted by my wife too. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the, you know, I I think that that history is a good is a good teacher, right? So especially for an entrepreneur, where when they see a result and they're not getting the exact result that they're hoping for, I think that the, you know, that feedback pattern is pretty fast. And I think that entrepreneurs tend to have a a fast learning cycle, even if they may be stubborn and ignore other people's opinions in the onset. Uh, Hopefully they're, they're, they're quick to notice when they were wrong and when they should be, you know, changing strategy or changing direction, or a different result would have clearly been more optimal. And I think that's. But well, that, oh, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say. I think that's where you know I can look back and say, "Wow, this could have been totally different if I'd had you know our current CFO, you know, with me X number of years earlier." Well, that would have really changed you know a lot of problems that I faced in the interim.
0: So lightning round question uh sales marketing operations finance of those kind of four functional areas which do you see as being uh the first priority to hire uh in, in one of these ventures
1: Uh well I think it I think it varies based on the skill set of the founder for sure Uh for me I would say it's it's probably operations um, because I think that I can do enough of the early sales. You know, I'm not worried about selling to clients myself personally, right? I'm more worried about the s- scale of a sales organization, which is a little bit of a more mature company problem, right? Than, than let's say when you're just starting. But I think I overlooked the importance of having really that operational. And I think the operational um, side has a huge connection to some of the cultural challenges that we faced as well. Because I think a lot of the definition and, and you know, things around process and things around you know, how is this being proactively defined were pushed to the back burner and said, well, we can, we can deal with that after we close this next deal. And, and so having the, the bandwidth in the organization to build that on the right foundation from the beginning mm-hmm. uh, is, is something that I, that, that I would start at the, at the very inception with if it were me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's but that that's sort of tailored to my specific skill sets and my specific set of scars.
0: Well, that's a tough question with no no I think right answer. But I was just interested to see where, where you landed on it, Josh. Uh, bring me to your last point.
1: Well, the the last point is a little bit more to do with uh, the last the last point that I had here was uh, hire real developers to build the software, and what I meant by that was that. You know, I think that that's kind of a well-duh type answer or question even. If you're already committed to breaking a software company out and running it separately, for example, then I think it's sort of, yeah, of course. I was aiming that more at the, the limbo when you're in that inflection point of I've got an idea for software. I'm running a successful services business how do i how do i get that first prototype built how do i test the idea with with client one or alpha client one or two and and that was something that i think i learned by experience that even though we had a bunch of technical folks as consultants at at the services company we really the difference between you know a an a plus developer and our technical consultants is really night and day in terms of quality of code, the scalability of the code, the speed with which they can prototype and, and develop. I mean, it, it, it's really shocking. And I think I was a little naive in the early days and, and and probably a little cheap in the sense that I was like, well, couldn't we just assign it to one of these guys for, you know, when they're not billable and ask them to work on it for a few hours and we get a prototype out? And and I think that really slowed down some of the ideas that I had prior to Insighton. We, we actually took that approach within Sighten, and quickly, very quickly, sort of um, realized that we needed to hire professional developers right away. Um, but for earlier projects that we had tried uh, at, at Stratagent, that we did not do that. And I sometimes I wonder whether it was the idea that didn't ever get traction or was it that we never actually got to sort of the point that we had you know a software product that that could sort of live up to the vision that we were having and and I think that hiring real you know dedicated developers is is critical to that i don't i don't think they have to have 30 years experience i just think they have to be they're they're cut from a different cloth than a than say a technical consultant
0: so I get it, and it's it's a fantastic point. Here's my question: You're always looking at the bottom line as an entrepreneur. You're always making where do I invest? What's the right place to invest? How early in your kind of decision to to push forward with insight did you make the action item to hire a developer?
1: Well, we we made that decision. Pretty pretty early, and I, I've got to admit, I made the I made the mistake I've warned everyone about first, which was I gave it to a, our most technical consultant. I said, "Can't you just build this for me over the weekend?" And no. <laughs> they came back and said, "This is going to take me months and months to build what you want built." Uh, and so, and we need some help. So we immediately went out and started looking. Now we were super fortunate in the fact that we found. A a fairly you know junior level uh, on paper developer that was um, that was super senior in his abilities, and so you know the ability to find someone with a lot of upside was critical for us um, because I think we 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 certainly didn't have the conviction to go out and hire a Silicon Valley CTO on you know on day minus you know, minus three months from the launch of the company, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But what we but what we did was by finding people with the right skill set who were really hardcore, highly talented developers, even though they were very uh, talented. And in our case, you know, th- this developer actually turned into our CTO and, you know, came from a background of having dropped out of college and was doing kind of odd projects and other things on, on the side but none of that mattered this guy could code and this guy could think and this guy was brilliant and so we you know we said great this guy's a perfect fit for us um, but i think that, that that process you have to you have to find somebody that you really can can sort of trust as as that technical partner up front because i've seen a lot of a lot of people in in similar situations say i have this idea and my idea you know the warning flags for me are I have this idea and the software shouldn't be that complicated. So I'm just going to hire this offshore firm to outsource it and they're just going to build it for me. And when that happens, you you might end up with a functional product, but you will almost never end up with a, with a product that you're going to break out and give up your services business over.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Words of wisdom, Josh, words of wisdom. Uh, You know, I'm fascinated by this idea of luck. Uh, You know, I consider myself I, I used to be a geologist years ago and, and I used to say to people, I'd rather be a lucky geologist than a good geologist because lucky geologists find minds. And your story uh, about meeting their now CTO you know brings to mind that idea of luck uh, that we do a lot of things to get ourselves into position where good luck happens, but at the end of the day sometimes it comes down to that. So uh, just your thoughts on that.
1: I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think uh, I used to have a chess teacher who, who used to say, "I'd rather be lucky than good," which is which is funny for a game that's not supposed to contain any luck, right? <laughs>
0: that is pretty <laughs> funny. I think that's the joke. <laughs> so
1: the um, I you know I I think that um it's it's a combination of preparation plus opportunity and is the is the breeding ground for luck. So, you know, you can't make I – don't, I don't believe people when they say you can't make your, your own luck. I mean, clearly there are things that you can point to that you say, wow, that was really lucky that happened. And I might not have been able to construct that exact event. But I believe that you can execute in a way that allows, you know, your odds to be way higher for luck to
0: occur. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my parable about this is I say, look um, – there are trains of opportunity which come in and out of the station every day all day your job is to get to the station and the effort to get to the station is all the hard work which train you get on that's where the lucky part comes but you got to get to the station josh this has been fantastic i just want to say that i really appreciate the authenticity that you've uh, shown by just sharing so much and so transparently with our listeners that's really great. I'm just really fascinated by the early stages of business growth and and the particular point at which you start to get some business momentum. And so you've given us some really interesting insight into how you used uh, uh, you know your skill set to, to to separate those two companies and build up insight. And so I hope others can learn from your experiences. And if they did ever want to reach out to you, Josh, and ask you about that, what would be the best way for them to do so?
1: Well, oh, they can uh... – and any method really works for me. I mean, my, my email address is super easy, josh at Uh Anyone can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty good about responding to messages or connection invites there. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Twitter is another way. I mean, everyone can uh, – I'm pretty easy to
0: find. <laughs> and, Josh, well, thank you again. And thank you to all our listeners. On behalf of myself and the Google Partners team, We really appreciate your support. You can also reach me on Twitter at Alankshire or LinkedIn. Just like Josh, I'm pretty good at responding to all of those things. And as always, I encourage you to listen to our back catalog, which is available on Google Play, uh, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can also go to the Google Events page and listen to it there. And you'll find lots of additional material related to each podcast. We'll be making some updates to that page, and I look forward to uh, bringing those to all of you. And join us for our next podcast when we'll ask our guests about the top five things that they wish they'd known.